Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and, and welcome to the, uh, uh, to the Atlantic Council. I, I do appreciate you all coming out here today on, and, and braving the rain. It's, it's nasty out there, and uh, I know that that can entice people to stay away, so I, I do appreciate folks, folks showing up to, uh, uh, today. So my, my name is Magnus Nordeman. I'm the Deputy Director for the Brent Scowcroft Center uh, here at the Atlantic Council, and, and I want to welcome you for this, for this re uh, release event for our latest uh, strategy paper uh, with the title, A Measured U.S. Strategy for for the new Africa, and I, and I want to uh, extend a special welcome to our two panelists who will speak later, Amanda Dory, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for African Affairs at the UD, and General Carter Ham, uh, former commander of U.S. Africa Command. Um, uh, welcome to you, and, and thank you so much for, for being with us today. Um, so this is the latest publication in our Atlantic Council strategy paper series, uh, and it's the second of, um, of papers focusing on regional strategies, with our previous one being focused on on the U.S.-Iran uh, relationship. Um, and this series of papers, which is a major effort here, uh, really a flagship effort for the Atlantic Council, uh, is intended and designed to, to enrich the public debate and, and start building consensus around some of the great strategic challenges that, that face us today uh, and moving forward. Uh, and we, of course, believe this is especially important with a, with a new, new administration about to take office here in, uh, uh, here in Washington. Uh, and it really is an opportunity to, uh, to look at some of the important areas of, of statecraft and outline new strategies to deal with the challenges and opportun uh, opportunities ahead for, for the United States and, and our friends and allies. Um, so to that end, we have published a, a series of strategy papers um, um, uh, looking at a range of issues over the next 20 years. Uh, everything from uh, a sustainable energy strategy for the U.S., uh, a strategy for space defense, um, a new global economic strategy, uh, a strategy for dealing with failing states, and, and so on. Uh, and you can pick some of these up um, outside this room along with, uh, with the paper that we are, are releasing today. Um, moving forward, we're also going to look at uh, uh, releasing, uh, releasing strategy papers on uh, uh, cyberspace and, and also Latin America. So, so please do tune in. For, uh, for that in the future. Uh, but today we're extremely excited to, to release this, uh, our most current effort uh, by Dr. Peter Fahm, uh, who's the director of our Africa Center here at the Atlantic Council and also, uh, also an executive vice president, um, uh, titled A Measured U.S. Strategy for the New Africa. Um, and in this report, he, looks, uh, uh, he takes a nuanced look at some of the challenges and opportunities for, uh, for Africa and makes a series of recommendations for how the United States can engage more effectively uh, with this dynamic uh, and evolving, uh, evolving continent. So, so I certainly look forward to, to hearing uh, uh, Dr. Pham's remarks on this. And after that, we will move to a, uh, to a uh, moderated panel discussion um, uh, with, with our participants. Um, of course, before I turn it over, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a round of thanks that is due, first and foremost, to our president and CEO, Fred Kemp, and Dr. Alexander Mircheb, uh, both leaders at the Atlantic Council who, who serve as the executive editors of, of, this, uh, of this series, and they are really the driving force behind the, uh, the broader effort. Uh, and of course, also uh, thanks to Barry Pavel, my boss uh, at the Scowcroft Center. Um, uh, and then, of course, also our, our strategy team here at the Atlantic Council, uh, Dan Chu and Alexander de Coco, uh, and then of course also Kelsey Lilly from uh, from our Africa Center, who has kept us all on track and kept all, all the balls in the air uh, during a uh, during a uh, complicated and complex um, effort. Uh, before last thing before I turn this over to to Dr. Fam, um, this uh, this event is uh, on the record um, and is being filmed, um, and we are also live tweeting the event uh, for those who are following us on the on the web and on Twitter. Uh, you can reach us either through at uh, AC Africa Center or at uh, AC Scowcroft, uh, and we're using the AC strategy hashtag for those who wish to engage through, 
through social media. Uh, and with that, let's, uh, let's move to what you're all here for, the, the discussion on our latest strategy paper, Focus on Africa. So, so Dr. Pham, thank you so much, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Magnus, and thank you to uh, all of you, uh, old friends and new, for braving the weather to, uh, to join us this afternoon. It's especially, I know, tempting on these occasions to say it's going to be live, uh, webcasts and I can stay home and dry and, and follow it there and get a few Christmas cards done while I'm listening uh, or whatever else. So thank you for coming out. I really appreciate it. I just want to make five kind of major points and then uh, really get to the, the heart of today's uh, program, which is uh, the discussion uh, with Amanda Dory and uh, General Ham and with all of you. The first is almost doesn't bear repeating, but I guess it needs to be, is that first and foremost, uh, we have an Africa strategy paper because Africa is strategic. Uh, that may sound like a truism, and I know uh, all of you share my conviction, otherwise you wouldn't be here on this cold overcast day, but the fact is it's not always been the case. Uh, so with, uh, in modern international relations theory, uh, Hans Morgenthau, who's sort of a lodestar for many of us who come out of the academic tradition, uh, in, a, in his contribution to a book entitled Africa and the Modern World, in 1955 declared that the United States has in Africa no specific political or military interests, full stop. Uh, and it wasn't just academics like Professor Morgenthau, but our own Department of Defense in 1995. There was very little traditional strategic interest in Africa. America's security interests in Africa are very limited, end quote. And uh, uh, then Governor George W. Bush, interviewed by Jim Lear during the 2000 campaign, Africa may be important, but it doesn't fit into national strategic interests as far as I can see them. Uh, and yet, from that same George W. Bush created the U.S. Africa Command. Uh, fast forward to 2012, the U.S. strategy toward sub-Saharan Africa, released by the, uh, under President Obama, said that Africa, more important than ever to the security and prosperity of the international community and the United States in particular, end quote. And of course, 2012, the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit, the largest ever convening of African heads of state and government by an American president, all the way through last year to the national security strategy of the United States. Africa is rising. For decades, American engagement in Africa was defined by aid to help Africans reduce insecurity, famine, and disease. In contrast, the partnerships we are forging today and will expand in coming years aim to build upon the aspirations of Africans. So things have changed in the arc of a number of years. Uh, what's changed about it? And I think we all know. Uh, if you just pull World Bank data, if you look at average annual GDP uh, growth in terms of real GDP, first half of the current decade, 2011 to 2015, five of the top 20 countries in terms of real GDP growth were African. The current half of the decade, even with the combust in commodities, 2016 to 2020, 11 of the top 20 globally are African countries. So just on economic. And of course, the economics is driven by, we all know, and uh, 
natural, not just natural resources, although they certainly are there, and not just extractive resources, but agricultural potential as well, but also the demographics. Uh, Africa's population is going to double by 2050. Lowest median age. By 2050, one in four working age persons in the world is going to be an African. Rapid urbanization. The adoption of technology. When I first began my career in Africa, I had a uh, Thuraya phone that was the size of a phone book and uh, was operated off a satellite that floated somewhere over uh, the UAE. And if one was out in the bush somewhere, one looked at the nearest mosque and looked for the direction of prayer and aimed one's phone more or less in the same direction and hoped one got a signal. Uh, by uh, today, more than a billion Africans have mobile phones. Some countries are well over 100% mobile phone penetration. Uh, you know, uh, countries like Kenya, a fifth of the economy moves by mobile technology. But it's not just these material aspects, it's improved governance. When I began my career, early 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, only one African leader in the entire continent, only one African leader, Somalia's Adan Abdulli Osman Dar, back in 1967, had left office voluntarily after being defeated in an election. Three others, Leopold Sedar Senghor, Amadou Ahijou, and of course, the great Inyere of uh, Tanzania, left at the end of long terms. Uh, today, virtually every state in Africa has opened up some political space, some significant political space. The only exception being, and we're and, uh, sales bit for uh, uh, another Atlantic, uh, Africa Center program on Thursday, the only exception of not even having election-like events being Eritrea, and we'll discuss that on Thursday. Uh, but my colleague Braun Brun has done a great uh, deal of work on that. So Africa is strategic. But secondly, what happens in Africa today does not stay in Africa, unlike things that happen in Las Vegas. Conflict, whether it be extremism, uh, uh, jihadism uh, or piracy and criminality does not just stay in Africa, flows north to Europe, east to the Middle East, and in some cases even westward. Uh, migration is a serious challenge, uh, not only in terms of security, but in terms also of political stability of many of our European partners. Again, uh, Africa plays a role in that. So what happens in Africa doesn't say there. My third point, and this is where this preface leads to some of the issues we raise in the strategy paper. We, what we need to do is to get real about Africa. If we acknowledge Africa's strategic, it's important, uh, not just for its own sake, but also for the sake of uh, the globe as a whole and our security interests in particular, uh, we also have to get real about African geopolitics. And my argument is that for too long, we've looked at Africa and engaged in a bit of wishful thinking or, uh, as, or more, and put in more academic terms, uh, juridical fiction. The fact is, there's not one sort of African state one size fit all. Uh, my argument is, if you look at this strategically, there are really three Africas and possibly more, but three broad categories. There's a pre-Westphalian Africa. There are African states that have never quite come together, even if they are juridically states and have flags just because you have a flag and wave it. 
doesn't make you necessarily a state. Uh, and it's a pre-Westphalian situation that prevails. Somalia probably being the case in point where the nation state has ceased to be and ceased to be in 1991, even if we keep insisting it exists. Uh, and 15, now 16, different iterations of attempts to uh, create a state where one has collapsed. Uh, we are where we are, and we are in the third, if I, if I keep my count right, the third postponement of the selection, not election, of a national government, which when it's selected won't actually be a national government, but a pre-Westphalian Africa. Or in the case of the tragedy in South Sudan, which is the United Nations and others point out, many experts in this town, verges on near genocide today. It is a state that is, was not even failed. It was stillborn, I would argue, as a state. Uh, but so there is, in many places, a pre-Westphalian Africa. But there's also Westphalian Africa. There are certainly places where strong states have emerged, capable states, partners, and one can go through them. But one has to also acknowledge for every state that has established itself and is a capable partner, for every Rwanda, for every Morocco, uh, there are those that where the Westphalian structures are there formally, but in reality, uh, the governance levels aren't there. And how do we deal with that? And then finally, uh, there's a third category, which is what, uh, following uh, other authors in this Atlantic Council series uh, of strategy papers have called Westphalia Plus, where actually reality today has gone, moved beyond uh, the Westphalian uh, uh, structures, where we have regional blocks, the East Africa community being an example, they're increasingly capable in doing a number of things, facilitating business development and political integration. But we also have subnational structures that we have not figured out quite the formula for engaging, which in many cases are uh, where the action is. Uh, one looks at a country like Nigeria, uh, where many of the states in Nigeria, where, with a constitution that devolves a great deal of power to the states, many of the states in the federation are actually larger than some of the African states we engage with on a state-to-state -state basis, but we haven't quite figured out the formula of working with these states, with these governors, et cetera, executive governors, et cetera. And then we have the growth phenomenon of cities. Africa is the, one of the fastest urbanizing uh, areas in the world, and certainly cities present both opportunities in the future uh, with agglomeration effects of people living together, reduced costs of infrastructure, but also challenges uh, that arise from that, and how do we engage with cities, many of which uh, are larger than nations themselves. Uh, uh, so, a West and then of course there are the corporations, NGOs, and other entities operating in this space, many of which have greater capacity than in some cases formal state institutions. How do we engage with them? Uh, and then finally, uh, under that rubric of the re getting real about the geopolitics in Africa, we have to acknowledge that the face is changing. It's no longer a game of the former colonial powers, many of which are in retreat, but also new and emerging powers. And not just the large ones, the, the, the China and Africa, uh, India or Russia, but also middling, middle-sized uh, regional powers, the Turkeys, the Malaysians, et cetera, and we can uh, get into that. And so how do we deal with that? And I propose sort of four elements uh, uh, that ought to inform U.S. strategy toward Africa when we think of strategy. One is, the first one, perhaps contrary, is earned engagement. 
Uh, and this builds off some work that uh, my epi and colleague at the Africa Center abroad when Bruton and I did a number of years ago with regard to Somalia, uh, but I think it applies elsewhere, is stop picking winners and losers. Stop giving the ability or the license to collect rents simply on the basis of juridical statehood, which may or may not be effective, uh, or even in our national interest, to be quite blunt about it. But working with countries, with partners, insofar as they have proven themselves capable of effective action, and more, I would argue, even more importantly, accepted legitimacy by the people they claim to represent. So not picking winners. Secondly, more realistic expectations. We have to be realistic about what our partners are capable and willing to do, what we ourselves in the United States and our European and other allies are capable and willing to do, and also being realistic about who can do it in various circumstances, instead of rosy promises which aren't met and lead to disappointments, et cetera. Third uh, element of a measured strategy I raise is what I call effective partners and partnerships. And this comes at, I would say, three broad levels. One is, on the African level, seeking out effective African nation states that are effective, are sovereign, that are uh, well legi legitimate in their, their, their own countries and regional leaders and working with them, triangulating. A good example of this on a number of fronts would be Morocco, uh, which, by the way, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about strategy, was worth recalling Morocco is our, the, for the United States, the first sovereign to recognize the independence of the United States was Sultan Mohammed III back in 1777. And that the United States' oldest treaty relationship unbroken is the Treaty of Friendship with Morocco, signed, interestingly enough, uh, on the U.S. side by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it's an old ally and a regional power uh, on a number of fronts, on the cultural, economic, 11% of business uh, transacted across the continent is done by Moroccan firms. Morocco is the second largest African investor in Africa, the largest investor, uh, African investor in West Africa, et cetera. And if you follow the news over the weekend, the announcement of a major infrastructure uh, deal between Morocco and Nigeria for a natural gas pipeline to export natural gas to Europe from Nigeria to Morocco, up the, uh, building infrastructure on the west coast of Africa. Uh, so that's one example, but there are others we can find, uh, and can, one can single out across the continent as well, of re effective regional states that one can triangulate. But also within African states, also looking at the subnational level. In some cases, partnerships are perhaps looking for ways, and, we, and this is where we have to, uh, to partnerships at the subnational level, whether it be in provinces or states where the constitutions permit them or assign them even uh, responsibilities uh, and which this are scalable, or in some cases even at the local level. It's amazing, uh, one, of the issue, one of my hobby horses that some of you know I beat often is the fact that uh, in the United States we've discovered that the type of policing that works best is community policing at the local level. Yet when we go abroad to talk about uh, security sector, we we advocate national police, uh, or at least push for it. Uh, try that here and you can have a political revolution, and yet we prescribe it elsewhere. Uh, so looking for uh, those types of solutions and vehicles to do that. Secondly, non-African partners under partners and partnerships, uh, certainly our traditional European friends, but also other partners uh, 
uh, who operate in the Africa space, Japan among, other, uh, among others, uh, as well as our partners in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, some of the Arab countries that also have equities there and, and others. And certainly among partners, one has to signal uh, in this age of constrained fiscal resources here and in Europe, the private sector. It's going to be, if it's going to be driven at all, it's going to be driven by the private sector where appropriate public-private partnerships, but in large part, the private sector and figuring ways to, to engage it better. And then finally, the fourth element is we have to have flexible structures uh, adapted to the reality of the new Africa that we're encountering. Uh, and that includes bureaucratic divisions that have to be broken down, redrawing in some cases, I make a very specific recommendation on assigning geographic responsibility. Uh, and uh, I'm not only saying this because I have uh, uh, panelists from DOD, but I think the Department of Defense actually gets it, treating Africa as Africans prefer to look at it as a whole, and the African Union as uh, Africa as a whole, instead of drawing lines uh, uh, across the middle of the continent, which may make sense in a certain way, but make less sense when one looks at where the security challenge is going north-south as well as the economic relationships. So bureaucratic organization, and more emphasis on partnering with the private sector, uh, again, uh, and figuring ways to do it. I think the current administration has made some ma significant steps toward that, but I think there's a lot more that can be done. Final point, and I'll conclude on this, obviously we have to implement all this. Africa was not a major campaign issue in this, or having been done this a number of times, or to be uh, put in, retros uh, in proper perspective, any presidential campaign. In fact, if you look at the general election debates in the last five electoral cycles, Africa explicitly came up only once as a debate question, and that was 2008 in the vice presidential debate where uh, a question was posed uh, on Darfur. And for the record, uh, uh, the, there was, uh, I'll, I'll say there was wordsmithing uh, and suggested answers which a certain candidate did not read or memorize and therefore did not answer the question. And I'll leave it at that. And no, I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but certainly, it's not going to be an issue, but uh, it will be, Africa will be an opportunity and a challenge for the incoming administration. Uh, so what do it need to do? Certainly, we uh, realign some resources and structures. We can discuss that. Shift some resources. I think some investments have to be made. I think it's ridiculous, uh, almost scandalous, that northern Nigeria, an area uh, with a population of 90 plus million people, predominantly Muslim, at the edge of the Sahel with significant conflicts, does not have any U.S. diplomatic representation north of Abuja. Uh, uh, in fact, no personnel. Uh, General Ham and I and Paul Delegation were just in northeastern Nigeria uh, a month ago, and we were able to go because we were there as private individuals. There was a ban actually on U.S. Person, official personnel moving north of the capital. Uh, but that's one example. One can, others where resources need to be shifted. We also have to implement this on a public private basis uh, and getting uh, involving very robustly the private sector. And finally, I think the, the thing we need to do is break down some of the uh, biases that have been there, uh, analytical biases. Uh, and I say this having been uh, through this. In, in 2005, uh, I spoke at the first congressional briefing to discuss Al-Shabaab. 
uh, 29th of July. Uh, uh, at that time, this was, you know, virtually dismissed as a figment of my imagination out of a few other creative people, some colleagues from International Crisis Group and others, and we all know what kind of a problem that has become. Uh, in 2011, uh, uh, a few of us, I'm not sure Lauren's here, uh, spoke at a, yeah, Lauren's back there, at the first congressional hearing on uh, Boko Haram. And at that time, uh, about 11 of us were interested, four witnesses, uh, uh, the stenographer, two members of Congress, one from each party, two congressional aides. Uh, uh, Ricardo Laramont, if I recall, Professor Laramont brought his wife, Lisa, and I think I brought one or two assistants, and that was the sum total of the people interested uh, in this subject. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, 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 our interests probably, we were right on it. So, so we've got some serious analytical uh, issues that have to be addressed as well. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, uh, lots of opportunities ahead. So thank you again for joining us uh, today for this. I look forward really to the discussion and I invite uh, General Hamm and uh, Amanda Dory to please join me on stage and we'll move to the discussion. Uh, so with that, I turn it over to my uh, uh, two distinguished, uh, far more distinguished uh, panelists uh, for uh, their comments, brickbats, whatever, and, uh, and then we'll turn to Amanda. Very good. Well, I, too, am impressed with the number of people who came out on a rainy day to talk about Africa's strategy because I am heartened to see all of the company here, who I think must share in the, the view that Africa is important, which is part of what you laid out at the outset, what, what the United States' interests are in Africa, and that Africa requires additional strategic attention from, from the U.S. going forward. So thank you for organizing the event and, and the opportunity to join and for taking the time to write a strategy, because I think that's something I've had some background in, in strategy work as well as Africa work. and. I understand the, the work that goes into producing one, and I think I'd like to use my comments to talk a little bit about the, the, the ends, the ways, the means, as you've outlined them in, in your document. But overall, uh, very timely relative to the, the lack of significant attention in, in the course of the campaign process, and I know allies and partners around the world are, are looking for clues as far as what the strategy in the future might look like, and you've moved into that space, I think, in a very useful way. So thank, thank you for that. Uh, it's worth mentioning, of course, that the U.S. strategy with respect to Africa and our policy has been largely bipartisan th through the years. We don't see huge variances from, from Democratic administrations to Republican administrations. There's kind of a, there's certainly fine-tuning and adjustments and, and recrafting of priorities, but, but I would situate your, your strategy kind of within that space of the, the kind of normal bipartisan range that seems to prevail with respect to, to Africa. I think the, the biggest challenge overall is taking on a continent, 54 uh, discrete countries as, as you've identified, and, and coming up with an approach and some principles that, that apply across that space. And I think you, you have succeeded in, in doing that, providing a framework, and that the really hard work 
starts when you start to apply it in particular regional contexts, particular country contexts, where you have to start weighing the different interests, where you have to start prioritizing. But in terms of having stars to steer by, uh, your, your, your framework gives us, give us those. In terms of, I'm going to use ends, ways, and means as the, the classic uh, strategy, strategy outline. And on ends, in my read at least, uh, you've, you speak to what the uh, Obama administration's national strategy on sub-Saharan Africa includes. Um, and I don't detect that you're, you're adjusting what those, what those objectives are in terms of democracy, trade and investment, peace and security, opportunity and development. Uh, a question I would have for you, um, I was trying to decide if you were changing the focus from democracy to, to governance more, more broadly, potentially. Um, but that's something we can come up in the, the discussion to understand, is that uh, a change or, or is that just uh, you know, words that were selected on particular pages? But grosso modo, the, the ends seem to align uh, already and you've kind of picked up from there, which is the ways, how would we have different, different ways going forward? And as you were just speaking to us, these are the ideas of, of earned engagement, realistic expectations, effective partnerships, and flexible structures. And just stepping through those very quickly on, on earned engagement, I think that's a, a, a very kind of useful way to think about how we would engage with countries and would want to dig further in terms of how, how does a country uh, earn that engagement. One of the constructs that, that we use is thinking about uh, willingness and ability as you think about partners. And you have a matrix if you line them up uh, side by side. And you have willing and able partners. Uh, you have unwilling, unable, uh, you know, all of the variations. And so w when you think about that matrix, one of the questions I had is, does earned engagement focus on just the willing and able? Or is it also willing and less able? Uh, and I'll assume that you probably meant to exclude anyone who's unwilling because we don't seek to engage with those who don't seek to engage with us. So the kind of how, who, who you would consider to be relevant in the earned engagement construct and uh, whether that excludes some of the, the weakest post-conflict states, for example, is, is an area that came to my mind as I think about the, you, you mentioned Somalia already and the challenges there. Uh, South Sudan. So the, the countries that were in your pre-Westphalian rubric, uh, how, how would they earn in, in engagement or, or do they? Uh, in terms of realistic expectations, it's hard to disagree with realistic expectations. I think what I would want to, to add to that in terms of some additional characteristics, one is to avoid mirror imaging uh, as we engage with partners. And I think in your comments just now, you, you let us uh, to that approach. If you think about uh, governance, for example, constitutions, you know, they're unique to each country. You'll have countries that have separation of church and state. You have other constitutions that do not. Uh, you have security institutions, uh, militaries that engage in, in border security. Uh, we do not. Uh, I, I think it is useful to, to recall that we're not trying to create United States's uh, through our engagement, but we're, we're seeking to support the, the development and evolution of, of partner states. And so perhaps that's part of realistic expectations as well. The other aspect is mutual accountability. And I think there are opportunities to uh, 
have broad-based agreements with partners that lay out what accountability looks like. Uh, we, we have that in, in some of the engagements we do as a U.S. government, but it's not across the board, and that may be something that, that works in well with realistic expectations. Effective partnerships, again, hard to disagree with, with that concept. I think um, there's always more that could be done. The uh, strategy document mentions UK and France and opportunities to, to engage with them. I think that is, is something that has, has proceeded very robustly as, as well as other European partners, uh, NATO, the EU. I think there are new opportunities with respect to Gulf states, uh, with respect to Asian partners. So the, the leveraging or the triangulation is, is something that, that as we build partnership capacity, I think is a, a critical tenant. Uh, flexible structures is the final way, uh, based on my, my reading. Um, I could not agree more in terms of uh, desire to remove the geographic seam between the, the Maghreb and Sub-Saharan Africa uh, in terms of the, the parts of the U.S. government that that's have that seam. It does, it does get in the way, and I personally would be uh, very much in favor of, of removing that where it exists. Also, the private sector role, it, fundamentally important to the, the way ahead, leveraging additional assets. I think there's some, some challenges with that. Uh, U.S. foreign direct investment, the amount that goes to Africa, 1% of the total, despite all kinds of efforts to, to uh, cause U.S. investors to uh, be open-minded or uh, adjust their risk-reward calculus. We have many partners around the world who are moving aggressively into that space, and, and we are not. Uh, so I think that's a, a huge challenge ahead where we could do better. The other type of flexibility you mentioned, flexibility in organizational structures, flexibility in authorities is also very important. Uh, departments and agencies operating with the authorities that are provided by uh, Congress to them. I'm very pleased to mention that in the defense authorization, uh, fiscal 17 defense authorization, there are some new flexibilities for, for DOD with respect to security cooperation uh, that, that we are enthused about, and we are optimistic uh, that, that the relevant committees could pursue that kind of approach for uh, USAID and State Department as, as well, because the authorities' flexibility would, would certainly help. Uh, and then finally, the, the means, as I read it, that, that was your implementing section, you know, kind of what, what are the resources to, to apply uh, to the ends that have been identified. Uh, increasing intelligence staff training focus on Africa, I, I think that, that sounds excellent. The challenge, of course, is always kind of balancing in, in a zero-sum way. If the, the pie is not growing, what, what regions are losing, if some regions are, are gaining. Absolutely support, as you described, uh, increased diplomatic staff and, and missions and, and initiatives. Uh, one, one flag is just the operating environment has become increasingly challenging. And of course, uh, with, with Benghazi and the increased focus on diplomatic security, that has a uh, cost to it and, and is a challenge. Uh, you mentioned sustaining defense resources. I, I interpreted that as you were not calling for an increase. You were talking about <coughs> that we're at a pretty good level already. And I think I would agree with that in terms of recent plus-ups that have happened for partnership engagements uh, with African partners, especially in the CT space, but in other spaces as well. So if that was a hold steady, 
Uh, I think that sounds about right, although the department very much wants to move beyond the Budget Control Act uh, to help with, with broader uh, fiscal management. And then I guess a question mark about uh, resources for, for development. Uh, USAID was not mentioned by name as, as far as I could track in, in the document, uh, but at the same time, some of the, the areas in which they're operating, the uh, less than Westphalian state level you know, kind of community engagement is, is a place where, where AID is the uh, US government uh, agency that, that is leading the charge. Uh, things like urbanization, countering violent extremism, that, that is uh, a key AID function in this current challenging environment that, that we're facing. Uh, so I, I wasn't sure how that netted out in, in the uh, document, but I would say from a, a DOD perspective, we, we talk about draining the swamp. We're talking about draining the, the swamp of extremism, and we view countering violent extremism as a key element of that so that it's not a constant beating back the alligators uh, kind of uh, kinetic uh, approach to, to countering terrorism. So let me close there uh, just by saying that the, the implementation is always the hardest part after the, the strategy comes off the, the presses and you have to start prioritizing and, and balancing in, in particular contexts, but, but I think it's a very useful framework that you've laid out. Thank you. General. Well, let me first, uh, Peter, join many others in congratulating you and Bronwyn, Julian, Kelsey, the, the whole Africa Center team for, for presenting us with a, a very well thought out and as Secretary Doria said, a very timely uh, strategy uh, for us to think about the United States relationship with, uh, with Africa. Um, I, I feel a little bit awkward up here. Uh, Dr. Fahm and Secretary Dory have, have forgotten more about Africa than I will ever know. Uh, I'm, I am not an Africanist, though I had the the privilege of, uh, of serving with Africa Command for a couple of years, and it was an extraordinarily uh, re rewarding experience, but um, I'm glad to be here. Um, I think you started, uh, uh, Peter, your conversation exactly the right way, and that is, uh, why, do, wh why do we care about uh, Africa? Uh, you articulated in your, in your document and in your words today a number of the key reasons, economic, humanitarian, and security, uh, among those many, many reasons that the United States should care about its relationship with, with the continent and with its 54 nations. A few, few years ago, I was privileged to speak at the Aspen Security Forum, uh, and, and, and in that session I said, any foreign policy that ignores one-seventh of the world's population is doomed to fail. I think that was true then. I think it's even more true today uh, for the reasons that uh, Dr. Fahm has has articulated, uh, certainly the, um, the population growth, the, the economic development and failure, uh, Africa's diplomatic influence, uh, the, in, the, the interests of other nations, including competitors in many spheres, uh, all of which argue, I think, for a, a, a renewed view of the United States relationship with the 54 states uh, across Africa. In other words, I think it's, it's, we are no longer in an era where Africa can, can be an afterthought in America's foreign policy. Um, I think also it's important for us to recognize that, that Africa is a place where 
a relatively modest investment of resources and interest uh, can yield some disproportionate positive outcomes. And it's also a place, though, on the opposite of that, where missed opportunities uh, will cede advantage to others, or they may result in, in the U.S. engaging in a far more costly manner uh, further down the road. Uh, the four principles that, uh, that you outlined in the document make a lot of sense to me, and I think they provide an extraordinarily coherent outline for the U.S. to follow. Um, Secretary Dory has commented on several. I, I'll, let me choose two of uh, the four principles to, to comment upon uh, earned engagement and more realistic expectations. Uh, for, for the realistic expectations, uh, again, for all the reasons that you cite, uh, the United States government will, will have limited resources, limited time, and frankly, limited energy uh, to commit uh, to achieving our objectives in Africa. Uh, this necessitates, as Secretary Dory has outlined, a very rigorous prioritization process, uh, outlining uh, realistic outcomes and increasing the reliance on partnership with others, including the private sector, as Dr. Fahm and, and Secretary Dory have each uh, outlined. And I think, again, in your the other principle of, of effective partners, I think, uh, makes, that, makes that case very, very well. Um, but establishing realistic outcomes is, is a, a necessary first step. Um, you cited Somalia, and I think that's a pretty good example. Uh, Somalia may be uh, about as good as it's going to get from a United States government perspective. And so I think we have to have a a realistic discussion and debate about uh, the, the expectations or lack thereof of different outcomes based on increased levels of resourcing and commitment. Um, I think that's, uh, that, that's a, those are hard conversations, but I think that's what we need, a, a hard-nosed assessment of sometimes the diminishing returns of, of increased levels of, of resourcing. On the earned engagement principle, again, I think uh, it makes all, all the sense in the world that we should concentrate our efforts uh, where the United States has a reasonably high degree of confidence that the host nation's government will responsibly apply and benefit from the United States commitment. But I would also argue that there are some places in Africa where our interests, and given who I am, I'm talking mostly about our security interests, uh, where earned engagement in my view, collides with operational necessity. And those African nations that are most likely to meet the earned engagement standard will in many cases, at least in most cases, uh, be the countries with the greatest capacity to provide for their own security. And conversely, those countries and governments with the least capacity, those least likely to attain the earned engagement standard may be the ones where U.S. security efforts are most needed in order to achieve our own national interests. Again, I would say Somalia uh, is not a bad example of that. Uh, so might uh, Libya, perhaps others. So I'm ready to sign up for your strategy. I think it is a good one. It is, as with all strategies, as Secretary Dory has said, uh, it briefs well. And let's see how it gets implemented. That's always the, always the real challenge. Uh, the four principles do, in fact, uh, make great sense to me as long as we recognize that there will be occasion uh, where for our own national interests, the United States government will consciously decide 
to commit talent, time, and treasure in places and circumstances that may very well fall outside of the well-crafted structure in this excellent strategy document. So thanks for allowing me to join you. Thank you, sir. Uh, before we open up, let, let me just respond briefly. I don't think we're that far apart, if we are at all, on the, I don't think there's a contradiction between earned engagement and the necessity, as you outlined, in some cases where the state, uh, there's no reasonable expectation it's going to arrive at the level of earned engagement. Uh, but the national interests, security requirements require U.S. or other allied action. And, and I would actually go back to the example of Somalia. It was a consistent policy of U.S. administrations, Democratic and Republican, going back to uh, the first President Bush, George H.W., the very end of his uh, very end of his tenure in office, through the Clinton years, through George Bush, all the way until this administration, not to recognize any entity in Somalia as sovereign. Uh, that didn't mean we didn't, couldn't, and didn't engage. We had to. We had very clear strategic and security reasons to engage. But uh, as recently as uh, the Samatar case in the Supreme Court, where at that time Solicitor General Elena Kagan, uh, along with Dr. Uh, Professor Harold Coe, wrote the brief of the U.S. government stating eloquently why, the reasons why the United States, for at that point, for nearly 20 years, did not recognize any government, citing the freedom of action and uh, the, legal, the lack of uh, uh, the greater legal authorities to act. One, I would make the argument that exactly what they wrote in those for, for this situation is the same today. So the, rec the diplomatic recognition, I would argue, gained us very little except restrictions. And I don't mind restrictions except if there's a trade-off, but there was no trade-off. There was no upside to tying our hands behind our backs, recognizing a state when the state was a phantom. Uh, so that's where I would argue. I, I don't think we're apart because I think we definitely have reasons and equities to be engaged, but is the entity there to be recognized? I think that's uh, the, that, that I would raise at least a serious question mark on, but other, uh, I think we're on the same page. Uh, so I'm in truth in lending, as Secretary Dory will remember, and I see Ms. Marmot there. Um, I'm partly to blame for that, and I will say only partly. Uh, in the summer of 2012, I was somewhat frustrated uh, by our ability to, by, the, by Africa Command's ability to, uh, to change conditions on the ground and, and alter our, our presence, which at the time, many of you will remember, was clandestine. We did not talk about the U.S. military presence in Somalia publicly, uh, and, I, and, I, and I felt that we needed to change things. So with the, the approval of uh, the Secretary of Defense and with the Secretary of, of State, uh, Assistant Secretary Carson and I traveled to, to Mogadishu. Uh, and I think it was that trip that changed his mind uh, and, and caused him to have a conversation with the Secretary of State that that ultimately, I think, led to, to recognition of the existing government. So, I'm, so I'm, you can put me in the blame box for, for that one. I, I don't disagree with you uh, that the outcome, uh, again, back to your point about realistically attaini attainable outcomes, uh, I, I think the, the expectation of, of what recognition might yield was probably uh, 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 overstated, at, certainly at the time. 
We'll open it up to questions. Ambassador Blaney. And please wait for a microphone. And then uh, please kindly identify yourself. I'm, I'm John Blaney. And first of all, I want to say that I thought, uh, although I've only skimmed it, I thought it's a very good paradigm. And uh, what's even uh, equally impressive is the way that this discussion has focused in a, in a multi-dimensional way. I can remember only not that many years ago when the only thing that we would discuss with the Pentagon would be train and equip, and that that wasn't going to be enough. The non-kinetic part piece had to be done as well, and, and there are many, many other, other issues. So it seems to me that we've come a long way in terms of making our approach together uh, more and more sophisticated, and I, I think it, it's, it's a major improvement. Now my question, which is, we have matriculated to begin to think strategically with much diversity in various groups of countries, but we're not the only party with a strategy. Um, and you touch upon other players, and you, and you spoke about other players, but I would like each of you to comment or as you wish, on China. Because uh, China, for many years, has had a strategy toward Africa which is uh, quite visible to those of us on the ground and, and has made progress. Now, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, as we begin to appreciate how important uh, good governance, fighting corruption, and other things are, which are not uh, seen and even played into by China. Uh, how do you see the dialogue with China uh, uh, being part of our new overall approach towards Africa? Well, I'll, I'll start, Ambassador, from the from perhaps the, the the easiest part of that relationship, and that's the the military uh, relationship and. There isn't much of one. Uh, uh, certainly, the the, uh, the the Chinese are are omnipresent across the African continent, but uh, but until recently, not so much militarily. Uh, I think many African countries found uh, early engagement with the with the with China on matters of security cooperation, particularly in in, in uh, uh, equipment, uh, was an easy but unsatisfying relationship and perhaps uh, I, I found myself uh, traveling about the continent and in many places finding um, uh, Chinese military hardware rusting away because it was inoperable because it was not sustainable for long periods of time but that's changing now and I think certainly that uh, that uh, you know China is is more militarily engaged most notably through the United Nations uh, I think it's. Uh, I think the, the latest factor says that uh, the the Chinese uh, military commitment to UN peacekeeping missions, again predominantly in Africa, exceeds that of all the other members of the UN Security Council. Uh, I think they're on their third battalion in the UN mission in in South Sudan. So there is a, a growing military role for China. Uh, their presence in Djibouti, I think, portends a a changed role a more active role perhaps uh, for China militarily in the continent than we have seen before. Uh, for the U.S., I think what that means simply is 
Uh, again, not an adversarial relationship, but a competitive relationship uh, with, uh, with China uh, in terms of uh, what we would call building partner capacity. And, uh, it, and it will be interesting to see uh, if there are opportunities in the future where China and the United States may have common interest uh, on the African continent, whether there are uh, some kinds of uh, uh, meaningful uh, cooperative efforts that might, might yield themselves. Tough to see that right now, but perhaps in the future. Sure. Just uh, this comes up constantly in, in various discussions, or, or I'm constantly questioned on, on this topic. And part of my answer is that when it comes to governance models, we're, we are in a competition w with China in, in terms of how we engage with African countries, whether they view the, the U.S. model as a viable one or if they look at China as, as a more viable path in terms of how they uh, engage the, the public and, and how governance works. And so I, I think there, there is a competition an underway uh, between the United States and, and China in that domain. There absolutely is a competition when it comes to uh, trade and and investment, and it, we're, we're not where we need to be. I think that, that came across in, in the earlier discussion. Uh, you know, kind of U.S. private sector has has not uh, stepped up in a highly robust way, and so from from that perspective, the the types of infrastructure investments the Chinese are making all across the continent, and how those you know begin to connect together. Uh, are, are very important to, to African partners and to Africa's economic future. In the, the security space, uh, I, I don't see a competition um, at this point. I think the, the Chinese are increasing their security posture. They are absolutely increasing their peacekeeping commitments. Uh, when it comes to to equipment, though, for example, the Chinese will sell to people who we will not sell to based on you know various uh, human rights concerns and and other types of concerns. So there, there's it, we don't have a uh, direct competition when it comes to equipment, for example. There there could be a point in the future if the United States, you know, doesn't pay much attention to Africa for whatever you know. It, in countering the, all the advice from, from the strategy, if, if we elect to not pay much attention to, to Africa, I can absolutely see um, not just China, but other countries kind of moving in to, to fill the void where we're currently, I think, um, engagement with, with the U.S. military is preferred by many, many partners. I did have that question for yeah. Peter, though. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he'll answer yeah. you too. Which is yeah. how how do you see you know China is is described you know kind of the the history of Chinese engagement in Africa and and from the perspective of this strategy is there a triangulation opportunity as as you were describing with some partners where U.S. and China work together uh, with an African partner or partners or how do you see China? Well, uh, uh, thank you. And I think answering both that and Ambassador Mulaney's question, I, my argument is the, we can't wall off Africa from the world. And that's if no other message. And I think the, uh, if we look at realistically, we're not in a zero-sum Cold War competition with China. But we're also not in a world where we should look at this 
with rosy tinted lenses about the type of world we're uh, oper operating in. If we see, you know, uh, the uh, you know structures rising in the middle of the uh, the South China Sea that uh, weren't there uh, uh, when uh, the tides went through, uh, and other places, or you know, certain fly uh, fly arounds uh, that the the PLA uh, AF have, has done recently. We're in, a, we're in a different world. Uh, and so Africa can't be segregated from that. I'm not saying that we're back to, I think a lot of people in the academic community and perhaps also the policy community react allergically to thought of competition in Africa because we remember some of the nonsensical things that occurred during the Cold War with the, uh, which was really a three-way Cold War, the, uh, the Soviet Union, the United States, and China often as a third angle of that during the Cold War, uh, war period uh, in Africa. Uh, backing different uh, groups and different liberation movements and regimes, et cetera. But the reality is Africa can't be roped off from that type of thing. And we have to also be careful what we ask for. Even in terms of triangulation, uh, you know, it wasn't the long ago when looking for a solution to Somali piracy, uh, we largely invited China to join international efforts to deal with piracy. But I'm not saying that was a wrong decision, but I raised, which I raised at the, that time was uh, beware of what you asked for because that provided an opening for the PLAN, the People's Liberation Army Navy, to develop what it didn't have, which was a long-range maritime expeditionary capability that they've, they've honed over the years, and now they're on their 23rd task force off the uh, eastern littoral of, uh, of, uh, of, of Africa, and the first ever De wartime deployment of a Chinese uh, military vessel in the Mediterranean, the Zhuzhou, during the Libya crisis of 2011 occurred because of KPO's development. Now we have this logistics facility at Obak in, uh, in Djibouti, which coincidentally, if you get a compass and uh, draw around you know, uh, a Shaanxi uh, uh, Y8 uh, reconnaissance where, where it can fly out of Obak, will cover the entire Arabian Peninsula and most uh, a good half of Africa. So beware what we ask for. So are there opportunities to co cooperate? I would say yes, on a discrete level. Uh, General Ham mentioned Chinese contributions to peacekeeping. We have largely been unwilling for a number of reasons, political reasons, to engage in blue helmet peacekeeping operations. So, but be aware that there is a long game being played and we have to be aware. Now, if we make a conscious decision aware of that long game, that's, I'm fine with that. What I worry about is sometimes we make a pragmatic uh, decision not thinking of the long game of a decade, much less two or three decades of the implication down the road, and that's, that, that concerns me. The gentleman here. And then. Fred Hayward, uh, University of Massachusetts. I think this is a, a wonderful document, very thoughtful and very well put together. But I wonder if you could talk about what you see as some of the policy implications of this for the U.S. beyond, we've talked a little bit about military and about governance. I mean, I just came from a, a conference in South Africa on, on higher education and basically the collapse of higher education in most of Africa since the 1980s. And that has major strategic and political consequences if we don't pay attention to it. And I'm sure there's some others. So I wonder if you could just elaborate on what you see as a few of the policy implications of the strategy as you've laid it out. Well, rather than a answering you 
direct, let me give you uh, an indirect answer, which I hope addresses. One of the things I'm hoping to provoke with this document is also a key thing about strategy. I think that we've missed, uh, we often miss when we file track. Strategy documents have a tendency to, at times, the temptation to be sort of a, a, a shopping list of desiderata, which no, uh, no one objects to any of them, but without the hard trade-offs. And the reality, which I've I tried to emphasize a few times, is we are in a fiscal climate and a political climate in the United States and among our leading European and other international partners, where whatever normative prescriptions I may have or personal preferences I or many of the people I think in this room have, we're unlikely to get significant increases in funding for development. As much as we all may believe and are sincerely convinced that this is the right thing to do on an ethical level and even the right thing to do on a long-term strategic level, the politics aren't there. Uh, so the question is, what, what decisions do we, where are the trade-offs going to occur? And that's frankly a conversation that I think we need to drive because we, uh, and unfortunately it's not a popular conversation, but it's one, you know, uh, I think a, a number of places in the document, I raise it as issues that, of sustainability and ownership of issues. So I don't have a total answer, but by way of orienting an answer, I think these are important things. Education certainly is one. Uh, we're doing some work here on uh, closing on primary education. It's another, the opposite. Of, uh, the uh, but again, where are these resources going to come from? Even on matters of diplomatic personnel, everyone's for increased diplomatic engagement. These diplomats, these posts have to come from somewhere, and they have to be funded somehow. Uh, you know, we we in, in the current administration, Chris, the has some signal successes, and I think what they have to be acknowledged on the democracy front. Uh, uh, Nigeria, I think, was a great success, and. Over the last weekend, knock on wood, Gambia, another success uh, for Iraq. On the other hand, let's be honest, it's same, uh, over the last eight years, uh, funding for democracy and governance programs in Africa at USAID have been cut by about 45%. Uh, so successes notwithstanding, that conversation was one that was really, I don't think, ever really had other than you know, deep in the budget process somewhere. It's the questions that need to be asked. But I think, if I, if yeah, I may, please. Peter, so as, as, you made, as you commented in your opening remarks, and as certainly captured in the document, th there is great space here, I think, for the private sector. Uh, and just in the particular area of, of education, uh, you, there are already uh, U.S. universities that have strong partnerships with African universities. That could be encouraged and, and strengthened. Uh, again, I, I, I am who I am, so I'll, let me talk from the military perspective that uh, the, the National Guard has a program called the State Partnership Program, which begins as a military-to-military -military relationship, but in many countries and with many U.S. states has evolved into uh, uh, relationships far beyond the military-to-military -military, uh, to include uh, private sector business-to-business, -business, educational institution, educational institution relationships. So I think there is room for this. But it's probably, I think, as Dr. Fahm said, it is probably outside uh, of the federal government's role. Yeah, thank you. My name is Andre J. Babu. I'm uh, <clears throat> uh, coming from the, you know, the Democrats of the Congo, you know, part of the Congo Diaspora Network. So actually, you know, thank you uh, uh, for this great moment. I share discussion stuff, and I know. Um, um, 
Uh, Dr. Fan pretty much mentioned um, one key point here when it comes to um, establishing more realistic, realistic expectation when it comes to partnership, you know, with Africa, you know, in, in a different country. And then the secretary came back again, talk about, you know, realistic expectation when it comes to partnership, and then of course the willingness and an unable, you know, partnership, you know, partnership with, you know, actual the government sign and the constitution and all. And then the general mentioned one very, very, very important key point talking about the missed opportunities in Africa. And I want to mention that because when it comes to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, if we can go back a little bit, you know, in history, you know, we know how the partnership, you know, when it comes to the United States and the Allies and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, apart coming from the World War II, you know, um, the Iranians and uh, the whole other stuff that's been going on. And then today, um, there is a big um, mass inside the diaspora right now in different countries, you know, because, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, people like us here in the U.S., you know, of course, we're, you know, very thankful for the hosting country, you know, with all this, you know, um, for the all this year and then all the stuff that's been going on. And it's been the same pretty much with some other uh, diaspora, you know, that are happening to be, you know, say, you know, like in the Eastern Europe right now, like in Ukraine, you know, in Russia and places like that. So I want to know, like, um, if there could be any game plan, actually, that can be established, like a quick, you know, a real partnership can be established between really the DOD directly with uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo through the diaspora, because every country is different in Africa. The Democratic Republic of Congo is very, very strategic, and we all know that, you know. I know if we can start talking right now, we're gonna talk from today until tomorrow morning, and it's, you know, better. So what I would like to uh, suggest, not only suggest, but I'm coming as a name of the as one voice in the name of the devil's diaspora is opening hands, you know, extending the hand so that there could be a special partnership and a special alliance between the US and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Because as we're looking at the situation right now with some of the risks that's been happening, because here in the US, you know, a lot of us has been establishing roots, you know. I have a son here in the United States that is 10 years old. Of course, this is the only country he knows. He's going to grow up here, you know, he's going to do his family here and all stuff. But then, as a parent, I have to assure that I have the absolute duty to make sure that he's going to be safe. So some of the stuff that's been happening, that I've been saying, am I supposed to just sit and stay quiet? Or do I supposed to stand up and say something and give hand and then actually be part of the process? Because of today, we've been seeing terrorism has been pretty much targeting the DRC as far as what the DRC has today. And it's been pretty much a tough cookie. And I know you guys, you know, pretty much know more, you know, when it comes to that. Okay. So, so my question is, my question is actually, so what's, what is your actual will or would you be willing actually to sit one day with the diaspora, you know, of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, specifically, you know, and speak with the I, DOD. I jump on that. Yeah. yeah, speak with the DOD and then start working together with the DOD when it comes to those matter, because right. it's very... I think the, the short answer is that the DOD would not engage with the diaspora uh, of any particular country. What we do have is our State Department, uh, who takes a leading role in terms of reaching out to diaspora communities to make sure that their voices are, are heard as we go through the policy making process, but it's, it's not a, a role for, for DOD. Okay. I think that answers. Mm -hmm.
Hi, my name is Gustavo Nbala. I'm with the, uh, uh, the Alliance for Democracy in Central Africa. I'm also with the Committee for Free and Democratic Equatorial Guinea. I'm from, I'm from Equatorial Guinea. My father was Equatorial Guinea's first UN ambassador from 1969 to 1970. I feel like I've been in this movie before. I go back to the days of Erica Barks Ruggles, Teresa Whalen, Colonel Vic Nelson, Colonel Kwiatkowski, the list of folks go on and on, and to me, it seems as if there's been no space. My question is, when it comes to Africa, really, you've got a conflagration going on, and it's getting to the point right now where people are dying and that Africa seems to not matter, but for oil and natural resources. So with the new administration coming in, are we going to be going through a back to the future moment where Africans will continue to die, those of us in the diaspora who want to implement rule of law, good governance, stability, and who want to form partnerships with the U.S. but find the inertia to be incredible. When you have Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice refer to Teodoro Biang as a good friend, that does damage. When you have the Atlantic Council, which was willing to almost give an award to Ali Ben Bongo, <laughs> that does damage. Okay. So what can we do as diasporans who are committed to the rule of law and good governance in Africa, what can we do knowing that this is just not another shell game? Okay. Let me, let me take, take that one on. Uh, the, very, very simply, as our diasporans, you're U.S. citizens. I'm not a citizen. If you're, well, if you're a U.S. citizen in the diaspora, engage politically. That's how, that's how we Americans make our foreign, our foreign policy, at the end of the day, is a reflection of what citizens do engage in democratic process, uh, engage in the democratic process, organize. Our most effective diasporas, not just African globally, are the ones who are organized. And very often our African uh, diasporas, U.S. citizen diasporas, simply do not organize or they organize along very fractured lines. I mean, Ambassador Blaine and I worked the Liberia account for our years and very often our Liberian friends were uh, organized, broken down by ethnic <laughs> affiliations or whatever, rather than a general, so it's organization and engage in the political process. But I think the other thing important, and it's not just the incoming administration or this one. Every, I would argue, every administration is going to conduct foreign policy in America's interests. Uh, at the end of the day, if you're expecting, if realistic expectations are, uh, not only realistic expectations, we should have uh, America versus, uh, toward the world, but the world toward the eye. The U.S. foreign policy is going to be conducted, and the first obligation of U.S. administration is to act in America's interest. Now, I think in many cases, America's interests and those of Africans do coincide, and that's where opportunities are to be found. Uh, but if one is expecting, you know, I would, the, uh, America to simply do something just because uh, without the interest, of, I think, you know, I think we're, it's engaging in it's not, it's not, that's how foreign policy of any country is made. That, that, that was my point. Yeah, but anyway, a uh, question over here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Terry Donmeyer, and I'm an investor, particularly in the infrastructure and the water sector in Africa. And I think the report from what I've skimmed is both uh, substantive and supple, which I think is needed at this point in time, given the dynamics and the changes that we see on the ground in particularly West Africa. My question is, from an implementation standpoint, uh, 
if you are able to implement this strategy, um, and it's a question for all three of you, because I think the issue is larger than any one individual, how would you start and what would you foresee as being the outcomes of that implementation? Thank you. I think that's okay. to you, since it's okay. your strategy. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I'll buy you a little bit of time to okay. thought. So I, I think one of the, one of the, one of the outcomes, and, and Dr. Fahm mentioned this in his, in his comments, I think the, um, the formal uh, adoption uh, and, and publishing of a U.S. government strategy you know, Peter would sign up for, you know, take this document, put a U.S. government's stamp of approval, put the president's signature on it, and move forward. But, but, but it, so I think that's a necessary first start. This, this will inform that decision. But it, it does, in fact, change things when there is a document uh, that is approved by the president that says, this is the United States strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa. That, that gives you the roadmap. So I think that's the necessary start point is to, for the next administration, have that conversation. Uh, I would hope quickly uh, take Peter's document, and I'm sure there will be many others, and say this is the articulation of our strategy. That helps the U.S. government. It helps the private sector. And it goes back again to, our, to conveying to the African nations, this is what you can expect from us. Uh, so I think that's a necessary first start. Uh, and I, I would thank thank you, Cheryl. I would say first we have to try. The, the, uh, in the current administration, I give the, uh, the Obama administration credit for having articulated a U.S. strategy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. However, it, it was the fourth year of the first term right. before that came out, June of uh, 2012. Uh, so I think having it now, I think the first thing that comes is the national security strategy of the United States, which by law should be done in the first year, and from that. So one would hope, one would hope, and. Uh, that in the incoming administration, that with that document done the first year, that out of that, which sets the overall guidance of the national security strategy, that below that, an Africa strategy would be articulated in conformity with that, informed by this and other, with, wouldn't wait four years, to do, three years to do it. That, that's one. I think secondly, I think some things will require legislative action and, and authorities, whether it be redrawing divisions, uh, geographic divisions at state, et cetera, but others can be done more administratively. Divisions within the NSC structure, for example. Uh, like one of the recommendations I made in here was that, at the very least, we've got, I argue, the DOD uh, areas of responsibility, AORs, make the most sense geopolitically, geoeconomically. Replicate that, at least, in the NSC process so that- We've worn him down. He's really- okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, those are, the, so there are achievable goals uh, on that. And the other thing, very quickly on the implementation, is as we're moving into who administration, I think is getting people into place. Again, look at what we, we had in the current administration. Uh, an assistant secretary for African affairs, Ambassador Carson, was in place by April of 2009. We had an ambassador out to the African Union by, confirmed by the Senate by uh, September, I forget, if, he, if Ambassador Battle landed in September or October. We did not have a US aid assistant administrator. Earl Gass was not confirmed and sworn in until April of 2012. And then all sorts of other. So again, getting a team in place quickly, 
uh, because if you're dealing with, you know, with all due respect to the, the professional men and women who serve in acting capacities, if you're acting, you're acting. And uh, so getting a team in place is uh, certainly a recommendation I would make to the, the incoming administration and to, of course, the Senate as well. Steve Land. Let me be short, and I'm not sure there's a question here, but maybe we'll come before I finish. Um, the concern of many of us is that Africa is going off the radar screen. I can speak for economic and trade, which I know something about and so on. But everybody says, well, with China and with the TPP and all the other initials, we're moving off. The fact of the matter is, if you listen to what Trump says, is very clear, and Africa can be part of his strategy. He's interested in America first, which one of you mentioned also, military. Africa can be a large enough market. It is moving along towards African integration. It is, um, it can replace China as the workhouse in terms of many things without threatening the United States. The question I guess I have is how do we do everything you guys want to do, everything I want to do, if Africa is off the initiative and all we have heard from Mr. Trump, unfortunately so far, although hopefully his advisors, who may be closer than we think they are, will be able to get the word to him that Africa is a serious place, not simply a place of corruption and whatever else he may think of it at the moment. I think that is our challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Before I answer, I, I'm getting the signal. So why don't we take uh, two more and take them as a round and get uh, the gentleman there. Uh, thank you. My name is Obang Meto, and uh, for Dr. Pam, when you talk, uh, I did not hear more about human rights, good governance, democracy, rural law. Uh, when Tony Blair and, and Bill Clinton came took the power, they used the term that Africa has a new breed of Africa. Today, we hear that new Africa. You know, new breed of Africa, those are people that who never left power, you know, almost, you can name most of them, Malasena of Ethiopia, Mujibini of Uganda, Paul Kagame, so those were the new breed of Africa. So we are, today we are talking about the new Africa. So can, you know, something which was not, didn't come out very clear. If we want to partner with Africa, we have to have a healthy African that will put the interest of African first not only the, the other way around. So it have to be based on mutual. So I did not hear from that. As someone that worked, I work with the human right from Ethiopia. As someone who's worked with Ethiopia, can you say something more about Ethiopia but as being a country that we're only opposition, 100%, there's no opposition. People are being killed, almost all are protesting. So okay. how come you didn't mention about human right? Thank you. Thank you. I'm Deirdre LePin from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Peter, uh, congratulations on trying to uh, create such a coherent strategy for such a diverse continent. Right? Um, the term earned engagement uh, gives the impression of putting the onus on Africa. I'm thinking about what mechanisms you foresee and how we can up our own game in the United States as strategic partners with Africa. There are a number of areas over which we have control. 
we can't control the FDI, the percentage that goes in, but we can help encourage companies to adhere to environmental standards, to pay the taxes that they owe, and so on. Uh, we can try to curb illicit financial flows that are huge that come out of Africa. We can think more about how to apply well-intended policies like the Leahy Amendment, where we have, in fact, in the past withheld military aid in some situations. I'm thinking of Boko Haram, where perhaps we should have offered it. And uh, perhaps we were too eager to see South Suzanne become an independent state. We might have been more measured. So I'm wondering what mechanisms you see within this global paradigm that you've created that would enable us as Americans on our side to do a better job at enabling a strong Africa to emerge. I think I'll take those three together and perhaps invite my fellow panelists to tackle whichever ones they want and, and I'll the ones addressed to me directly, but okay. go ahead. Uh, the, the gentleman who raised the, the issue of making sure Africa is on the radar screen from a opportunities perspective and, and not simply the, the threat perspective, which may be more prominent if you're looking in the landscape for, for what you're concerned about first and kind of putting security first. I think that's a, a fair concern to, to raise and it's this community that has the responsibility of, of making sure uh, in, in every way we can to articulate that opportunity space uh, for, for the, the private sector and, and for the U.S. government, uh, as well as the, the opportunity cost if, if we fail to, to uh, take full advantage. On the human rights uh, rule of law, and I, I'll, I'll combine with the, the last uh, question in terms of what can the U.S. do. I, I think the institutional strengthening work that has been launched in, in earnest very much should continue going forward, whether it's within security institutions, whether it's institutions that support good governance. It's the kind of work that is um, kind of difficult to, to wrap your mind around at times or to uh, show return on investment in a quantitative way, but it's the kind of going back to the strong men versus strong institutions uh, debate. I, I think we've seen some important progress institutionally, and that's really something where if we continue to, to express our firm belief that that is a, a key part of the, the path to success, that, that we've found many willing partners uh, with various countries willing to, to work in that space. So I, I think that is um, low-hanging fruit from that perspective. Yeah, I would echo Secretary Dory's comments, particularly on the human rights aspect that, uh, that is foundational, certainly, to the, to the U.S. security relationship with African countries. It, it must necessarily be so. Uh, but I'd argue that, that increased engagement can be very helpful in in furthering the cause of human rights, more uh, focus on professional military education, more opportunities. I think sometimes in the, in the security sector, the, one of the very best things that we can do to advance uh, human rights is to partner U.S. security personnel, be they soldiers or, or, or police, uh, uh, with African partners to, to not only talk about what's right, but to demonstrate through their behavior and by their actions uh, what is right. But certainly we don't ever want to walk away from that. That's one of our, 
our, uh, certainly our, our foundational principles as we, uh, as we move forward. In terms of getting, you know, keeping, getting and keeping Africa on, on the radar, um, it's education. It's, uh, uh, it is opportunities such as the Africa Center and, and Dr. Fahm and, and many others that, that, that take uh, opportunities of, of uh, events such as this to say, to, to educate the, uh, the American populace, to opportunities to educate our elected leaders of the opportunities that exist uh, for the United States government and for private sector uh, on the African continent. And I think the more of that that we can do, um, it, it, is, it is very beneficial not only to the United States, but to most African countries as, as well. I think each of us has, has had multiple opportunities in engaging with elected leaders in the United States or with business leaders that, or, or others in non-governmental organizations. That, and, and very often the comment was, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that, that this was occurring in, in this African country or in this region. So there is a, uh, there is a dearth of understanding and, and we all can uh, help to, uh, to improve upon that. Thank you. Let me uh, ad ad address the, the question that was directed to me uh, with regard to human rights and specifically this question of Ethiopia. I think I make very clear in this document and, and it's worth emphasizing uh, two things. First, I'm unapologetic uh, that my perspective is that of a U.S. citizen. Uh, I'm grateful to this country for what, the opportunities it's given me, and my interest, my interest is America's national interest. I'm unapologetic about that. But I would argue that America's national interests are best advanced when they are consonant with her values and her ideals and are sustainable when we're dealing with partners, and this is where earned engagement, if you read the document, when I speak about earned engagement, I'm talking about two things in particular. One, that the, that the regime is effective, because if it's ineffective, really the conversation ends there. Secondly, effectiveness is measured in governance, and governance is measured in its legitimacy. Because if it's an illegitimate regime or one that's regarded by its people as not being legitimate, again, that's a partnership investing in which is, may have some short-term gains, but in the long term is not sustainable and is probably detrimental to my you know, guiding star, which is America's interest in the long term. Uh, with that as sort of a, a preface, let me answer your question directly since you're kind enough to put it to me directly. On Ethiopia, I'll be quite blank. Uh, Frank, I'm very concerned. Uh, one, one would have to be, you know, totally blind to reality, again, emphasis on realism, not to be concerned about the mass protests, the state of emergency, and the crackdown in that country. And the question being, now Ethiopia is a very important country to the United States geopolitically, on the security, and on a number of other fronts. And for those reasons, and a host of others, one has to be concerned about what's going on and the sustainability uh, and the long term. We hope for the best, but we also have to engage, and as friends and allies and partners, engage, I think, in a frank discussion about things that are going on there. So I think, you know, that, that's, you know, that's my point there. I think uh, the things are at, and to borrow a phrase from my boss, Atlantic Council, President Fred Kemp likes to use, it's an, I think the country is at an inflection point. Where it goes is really up to Ethiopians. We can only support from the outside, but it's one that all of Ethiopia's friends, to be quite frank, have to be concerned about. And, uh, and I would agree with that. And I know there are other questions, and we're happy to speak with you, but I know also that 
many of you have been very patient and, and uh, coming out on a day like today, even uh, one of the things we try to do at the Atlantic Council, and uh, especially the staff, is try to end our events at least on the time advertised. But I will certainly, uh, and I know we've slightly gone over that already, but I'll remain and certainly happy to en engage uh, anyone. But thank you very much for joining. And please join me in thanking General Hamm and Amanda Dorff.